0: Thank you so much for coming out to this seminar. The name of the seminar is called What Adventists and Atheists Have in Common, The Damnation of Damnation. Uh, I believe that God is going to bless abundantly, but before we start or go any further, why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer, and let's pray for the Holy Spirit to be here. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, Many of us are exhausted and tired, but we thank you, Lord, that in your Sabbath we can find rest. So Jesus, we pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would give us rest, at the same time invigorate our mind, and encourage us, Lord, with this precious truth that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may want to be uh, be seated. Just letting you guys know, the second presentation is entitled Genocide in the Old Testament, and I have been blown away by the study of that topic, so if you can make it, please come on out. And the third topic will be Ellen White, Outside Adventism. Some remarkable encounters have taken place between Ellen White and non-Adventists, and I really believe you're going to be encouraged by that. Um, I was also told by some of the leadership here that the other seminars are empty. So if you want, uh, after this seminar, you can head out to another seminar. Uh, but uh, I know the Spirit of God will lead you to where you need to be. Amen? Amen? Amen. The name of the seminar is called, What Adventists and Atheists Have in Common, The Damnation of Damnation. I like what 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says. It's a common verse used by people who are defending the Christian faith. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says this, Sanctify the Lord God in your what? hearts and always be ready to give in defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and what fear folks i want you to understand this point it's not simply just having truth but inherent to truth is its very communication yeah. do you hear what i just said it's not just about having the truth or giving the truth uh, but what is inherent to the truth is its very communication as you see in first peter chapter 3 verse 15 Uh, It's very important that as we are sharing the truth of God, that we make sure we communicate it in a very humble way. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this, the question of being an apologist. An apologist is someone who defends a certain idea or topic. The question of being an apologist is not so much whether you use an apologetic in answering someone's question, but whether the apologetic you already use is a good one. Can you say amen to that? Somebody once said to me, they said, oh, it's not really good to be arguing about the Christian faith. But here's the thing to understand. The very person who is saying that is giving an argument of why it's not good to argue about the Christian faith. Folks, what C.S. Lewis says is very important. He's saying this, that everybody here gives a defense for something they believe in. The question is whether or not it's a good defense. Can you say amen to that? The topic that we're going to be covering today has to do with the topic of hellfire. Now, I want to tell you a true story. It happened to me about two years ago, and this is why I'm so passionate about trying to understand this topic like never before. I was preaching in an evangelistic series, and the weekend that I was supposed to speak about the state of the dead and about hellfire and what the Bible teaches about that, I got deathly ill. I got deathly ill. Now, I don't get sick very easy, but when I do get sick, it's like Ebola. Okay? So I got deathly ill on the very day that I was supposed to present the state of the dead, and then the very next day when I was supposed to present the topic about the good news about hellfire. And so the Bible worker and some of the young adults came, and they prayed over me, and they did this hydrotherapy, and I got better. But let me tell you something, when I actually preached that message, I mean, I got up there and it was just like the Spirit of God came upon me and it was so powerful. But as soon as I actually walked off that stage, I was like, oh my goodness. And I couldn't even get to a chair in time, I almost collapsed. But praise the Lord, it was just a powerful weekend and the Spirit of God blessed abundantly. Now, you're thinking to yourself, okay, but still, what's the big deal about Hellfire? The next day, one of the church members or one of the people who had been attending the series came up to me and they said, something interesting took place on the very weekend that you were presenting the topic about hellfire. I said, what? He said this, I actually went to the local mega church on Sunday and the pastor had a very unusual sermon. He said the very night before, while he was dreaming, he dreamed he saw hell. This is the local mega church pastor. It just lets you know there's a great controversy. He said he saw hell. And as he was taken into this vision of hell and this journey going through the, the underworld, he saw the most horrific scenes. He saw people moaning. He saw people just burning and being tormented uh, just moment after moment. And he said he couldn't handle it anymore. And just in that dream, he was just locked in this view and he saw everything all around him. He saw these caverns that were full of love and fire. And then when he came out of it, he knew he had a message to give the church Sunday morning. And so Sunday morning came, and he told his church that right now, as we speak, there are people who are being burned and tormented by God. And so he told this congregation, he said this, if you do not repent, you're going to suffer the same fate as those people, and that is the message of God to you today. I found out about this. I was so blown away. And then I began to think to myself, how important is this topic about what happens to people in the judgment? Can you say amen to that? Because it is correct views of judgment that gives us correct views about the cross. Can you say amen to that? Because remember, the judgment of God fell upon the cross and correct views of the cross give us correct views about what love is. Incorrect views about the judgment give us incorrect views about what happened at the cross. And if we have incorrect views about what happened at the cross, then we have incorrect views about what godly love really is. Folks, this is extremely important that we understand this topic like never before. This is what I wrote. Common sense is not so common anymore. Can you say amen to that? There abounds in our world today some of the most wicked and diabolical ideas concerning God's dealing with mankind. One particular concept that is being debated among thinkers and scholars alike is the subject of hell. It has been maintained for centuries that for the wicked, a supposed deserved afterlife of endless eternal torment awaits them where there is no mercy, no cessation, and only an infinity of progressive agony. The righteous will spend eternity happy and enjoy the bliss of heaven, while the unrighteous are ever suffering miserably for one lifetime of sins. Those who propose such a view believe that it is entirely consistent scripturally and that it is philosophically harmonious with the revealed character of God. As of more recently, this widely accepted perspective has been challenged. But traditionally, two groups have always rejected the doctrine of a divine eternal punishing, one school of thought being atheism and the other, Seventh-day Adventism. Both see the fallacious misuse of philosophy and or scripture to defend these medieval views. Such a belief is viewed as entirely evil, heinous, maniacal, disgusting, revolting, pugnant, inconsistent, illogical, inhumane, inharmonious, incompatible, irreconcilable, and above all, damnable. Can you say amen to that? Folks, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a very special duty to show or to reveal what the character of a God is to this world. Amen? And you see what's very interesting that's taking place in our world today. We have one group of people that is trying to maintain and defend this teaching that right now God is burning and destroying people as we speak, torturing them for trillions and trillions and trillions of years in the future. He is going to be doing these things. And it's very important that we reveal what the truth of Scripture is, amen, and clear away the dross that is there. As I said before, there are two groups that have always maintained and that this is simply a a fallacious misuse of scripture and philosophy to try to defend this. Now, I'm going to show you something very interesting. There are quotes from various individuals, and I want you to see how aligned these quotes are. Here's the first one. I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the very men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be eternally punished, and this is a damnable doctrine. This was written none other by Charles Darwin. How about this individual? This one's very interesting. How repugnant to every emotion of love and mercy, and even to our sense of justice, is the doctrine that the wicked dead are tormented with fire and brimstone in an eternally burning hell. That for the sins of a brief earthly life, they are to suffer and torture as long as God shall live. Yet this doctrine has been widely taught and and is still embodied in many of the creeds of Christendom. This is none other than Ellen White. Who will say with confidence that sexual abuse is more permanently damaging to children than threatening them with eternal and unquenchable fires of hell? And this was written by none other than Richard Dawkins, who's considered the most foremost published atheist right now. This is a very interesting quote. He ejects himself from all denial of himself and of his nature, of his naturalness, and in actuality, the form of an affirmation as something existent, corporeal, real, as God, as the holiness of God, as God the judge, as God the hangman, as beyond, as eternity, as torment without end, as hell, as the immeasurability of punishment, and guilt in other words somebody is rejecting all reason they're rejecting all just understanding in humanity to try to defend this teaching that god burns people for all of eternity this was written by frederick nietzsche this one's interesting for this reason, Christianity, which in one breath espouses a God of infinite mercy and pity, and in another describes the fires of hell in which millions upon millions writhe, even now in horrible and unending pain, has for many people become an absurd joke. What does eternal torment say about God's character? What kind of justice does it represent? After a few hundred billion eons burning in hell, even Hitler would have paid for his own sins. Clifford Goldstein. God says, do what you wish, but make the wrong choice, and you will be tortured for eternity in hell. That's not free will. When a man says this, we call him a psychopath. When God says the same, we, we call him loving and build churches in his honor. And I want you to notice how venomous these individuals are because they realize to try to really push this teaching, to try to really bring it to the forefront of people's mind as a reason of why they should love God is completely absurd. It's completely absurd. And this was written by Chuck Eastum, who's also, who's a professor of computer science in the Midwest. There's one notable thing about Christianity. Bad, bloody, merciless, money-grabbing, and predatory as it is, in our country particularly, and in all Christian countries, in a somewhat modified degree, is still a hundred times better than the Christianity of the Bible, with its prodigious crime, the invention of hell. And this was written by Mark Twain, who kind of went back and forth, was more of an agnostic. But I want you to see what's really propelling them in their denunciation of Christianity. It is these false, wicked views about eternal torment. I love what this individual says first i don't believe in the hell you believe in because god is not going to torment people for millions and millions of years so we can smell the burning flesh but the problem is this the hell i believe in is hotter than the hell you believe in they said what do you mean i said the hell the bible teaches about gets the job done it burns up sinners and sin and consumes them to ashes then god will make a new world but the hell you believe in isn't hot enough because it just torments people for millions of years and this is mark finley I love that brother, don't you? Amen, amen. Folks, do you see what's happening here today? You have people who are simply using their reason and their conscience and are rejecting this false teaching. However, they're finding themselves with unlikely bedfellows. You have Adventists and now you have atheists that are together that are rejecting this teaching, which is very important for us to understand because this is perhaps a building bridge, a connection to those individuals. Look what Ellen White says right here in Great Controversy. It is beyond the power of the human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment. The religion of the Bible, full of love and goodness, abounding in compassion, is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. And I absolutely 100% believe that. I was born and raised a Hindu. I also come from a Sikh background. And when Christians would come to me, you know what they would give me? They would give these cartoon tracks. And they'd give me these cartoon tracks and there it would show two pictures it would show a picture of heaven and this guy with clouds and with jesus and he's smiling really big and on the other side of this bridge was a picture of someone who was burning in the fires of hell and he was screaming for justice or screaming for help and these people would present this view and say well don't you want to love god now think about that don't you want to love god you know why this is very important to understand because our motivation for going heaven is no longer heaven itself, but fear of hell. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. The motivation for going to heaven is no longer love or heaven itself. It's that I'm trying to avoid this. You know, it's like if someone came to you and said, where would you like to call Porter for the summer? Would you like to call Porter for in Hawaii? Or would you like to call Porter in Modesto? Well, I'm from Modesto right? But you don't get to one by simply just trying to avoid one, right? The Bible teaches perfect love casts out fear. Can you say amen to that? And this is very important for us to understand because right now hell is being questioned, although not just by atheists and of course Seventh-day Adventists, but this traditional view of hell is being just questioned by many thinkers and scholars alike. Now one of the good things you get from the emergent church, I just said one of the good things that you get, is that there is a questioning about what hell is. They are actually challenging the traditional view of what hell is. Unfortunately, the problem is, is that they're swinging the pendulum to one other side. So it's not now that God will burn you for all of eternity. It's that God will burn you for a little bit, but then eventually he's going to take everybody into heaven. And you can see why that view isn't biblical either, because that would violate one's freedom of choice that would violate one's freedom of choice. I heard one brother put it this way, he was trying to defend this sort of swing of the pendulum, it's called universalism, and he was trying to show how that when a person burns for millions and millions of years, they're gonna start thinking in their mind, maybe it would be better for me to be in heaven. And then they would decide to be in heaven, and that moment God will take them out of hell after they repented and place them in heaven. But you see what's wrong with that too. You're being forced to make a decision. You see, all these other views, they all fall short. But when you look at the Adventist view, when you see the beauty and the harmony and you see just how just and merciful it is, all of a sudden it comes into view that this is the most perfect system out there. You know, I actually studied with a four-year philosophy student from Berkeley. She graduated also with her law degree. We were studying this concept of hell and annihilation and what happens to sinners after the millennium. At the very end of it, she was very, it was, I mean, I'm just telling you something. This woman, studying with her was very difficult because we'd end up studying for two hours because she would just criticize everything. But I appreciate it. It was like a workout for my mind. But when we came, when we actually came to this teaching, she was so blown away about how just, how perfect, how good it is that she actually said, there is no justice system like this on earth anywhere. It is beautiful. Can you say amen to that? Amen. 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 You know, what's also very interesting. There was a debate that took place about in 1994 in Canada, and it was between William Lane Craig, who was a well-known, probably the most well-known Christian apologist who debates atheists. He debated this atheist by the name of Raymond D. Bradley. Now, William Lane Craig holds to this view that God burns people for all of eternity, that even now God is just tormenting people, and it is progressive. They're not getting used to it. And in this debate, he attempts to defend that view. Now, Raymond Bradley is an atheist. He's an atheist. He wants nothing to do with God. However, he is going to question William Lane Craig's uh, thinking. And you're going to see something so remarkable with what Raymond D. Bradley presents. It's very interesting. By the way, one time I heard William Lane Craig attempt to defend this concept that God burns people for all of eternity. Someone says, well, how do you justify that? And how does that make sense that someone is burning for all of eternity? I kid you not, for a guy who has several PhDs, this was his response. (laughs) That when a person is burning for a certain period of time, they're going to get to the point where they're going to start cursing God. And as they're cursing God, they're sinning. And as they're sinning, they're getting more guilt. Hence, there's just this cycle that takes place, and this is why they're stuck there. And I am there, and I remember I was watching this debate, and I just thought, I like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, is, is this really a God of love that would just assign people this eternal torturing for all of eternity? It's very mindless. It's just mindless, and it makes no sense. It's now nowhere consistent with the God of justice and mercy. But this is very interesting. This debate took place by these two individuals. After William Lane presented his defense about why God burns people for all of eternity, Raymond D. Bradley did something very interesting. He says this. He said, all right, you believe in a God who's just, you believe in a God who's merciful, you believe in a God who's loving. Now I'm going to list four propositions and watch these four propositions and if, tell me if this doesn't line up with Seventh-day Adventism. Proposition number one, a perfectly good being would not torture anyone for any period, whatever, however brief. Can you say amen to that? Proposition number two, a just being wouldn't punish someone eternally for the sins committed during a brief lifetime, but would proportion the punishment to the offense. That's Seventh-day Adventism. Look at the third thing, a righteous being would not punish someone eternally for unavoidable lack of belief. Look at the fourth thing he said. Praise the Lord that God doesn't judge us on ignorance, right? But in rejection and neglect of the truth. Look what proposition number four says. A loving being would not bring about and perpetuate the suffering of those that it loves. Folks, if he was debating a Seventh-day Adventist, the Seventh-day Adventist would say, I believe in every one of those things. (laughs) You're arguing with the wrong guy. We're actually on the same team. I'll join you over here. (laughs) Folks, do you see what we have here? We have something so beautiful. It is the, the justice system of God. And by the way, we're going to get into something very interesting that also will appeal to atheists as well. In fact, this is very interesting. Because this teaching of eternal hellfire goes against the innate justice of men. In other words, if you were to take a child, and you would say to a child, you would say, all right, young Billy, Billy, is it wrong to torture people for all of eternity? Even the little child would say, yeah, that's, that's wrong, all right. That's definitely wrong. Even a child would know the difference between right and wrong, right? So there are certain scholars who actually use their mind that they themselves actually question this teaching. This is very interesting. This was one particular scholar. He said this, but I note that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story that the lost soul is eternally fixed in this diabolical attitude we cannot doubt but whether this eternal fixity implies endless duration or duration at all we cannot say and folks this was written by c.s lewis c.s lewis Folks, this is so awesome because when you begin to see this, you can actually see people who are using their mind are seeing this as complete absurd and incompatible with the God of the Bible. Can you say amen to that? Edward Fudge. Does anybody know who this individual is? Oh, you're going to love this guy right here. This is an individual who was actually hired. He is a lawyer. He was actually hired to study the concept of hellfire, okay? He went at it, he studied it, and guess what? He came to the same conclusion as Seventh-day Adventists. I actually interviewed him uh, not too long ago. Um, It was actually last week. That was was too long ago. (laughs) You know, when you're talking about destruction, it's always idioms that are being used. Time, you know. Okay, but anyways, here's the thing. I actually interviewed him. He's a godly man. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. But as we talk, this man began to share with me his story about how he was hired to study this, this teaching out. He, the person who hired him wanted him to be complete unbiased, so that's why he was hired. He had nothing to do with the Christian church so much. So he began to study out the issue, and he came to the exact same conclusion as Seventh-day Adventists. When I talked to him on the phone, and I was just interviewing for about an hour, he said to me, you're probably gonna ask me the next question. I said, what's that? Why I haven't studied the Sabbath out with just much intensity. And he said, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. He's like, well, I haven't. But maybe one day. This is a brother who goes all over the world. In fact, he was actually in a debate at Biola University. Does anybody here to Biola? It's down in Southern California. Probably the one of the most well-known evangelical Chris- Christian colleges. In fact, if you want to go to Biola, you have to actually agree to a set of doctrines. And one of the doctrines being that God right now is tormenting people for all of eternity. You have to. They will reject you. You know how I know this? They rejected me. I actually wrote in the application, well, I believe that God uh, destroys sinners as stated in the scripture. And so they questioned me. They knew what I was up to. But anyways, (laughs) he actually did a debate last year at Biola University. He was going against one individual who was trying to propose that God is definitely burning people for all of eternity. Now, Edward Fudge believes exactly a Seventh-day Adventist belief that God, at the very end of time, will destroy sinners, but there will be a finality, that they will not continue to burn for all of eternity. He said this, no joke. He said that this, the auditorium was, it had a maximum seating of 450 people. He said 20 minutes before the debate, it was completely filled. When the debate actually started, he said they turned away 300 people. Folks, what does that tell you? That people are interested in trying to understand this concept. Do you know they actually ma- they're making a movie about this guy? They're actually making a movie. So, what's very interesting is that this is supposed to come out really soon it's actually made, it's supposed to come out this year and it's it's being made by adventists but that's very important because adventists are seeking a very unconventional way of trying to show how this beautiful truth isn't just an adventist truth can you say amen to that in fact when i was talking to edward fudge last week you know what he said to me no joke he said this to me he said this you guys have all this truth and you guys are sitting in the corner I was like, ooh, I felt that one right there come through the phone. But folks, I want you to understand something. Knowing the truth about what happens to sin and sinners at the end of time is so freeing. Can you say amen to that? In fact, when I was becoming a Christian, one of the most difficult obstacles I had was dealing with this idea that God is burning my ancestors for the last several thousand years. It was one of the obstacles that stood in my way when i was becoming a christian i never forgot when the sabbath school teacher shared that beautiful thought that this is not an eternal punishing but internal punishment i remember i walked out of that sabbath school and it was like a ton of bricks were just off my shoulders i was just free i never forgot the si- sun was shining in the air and i walked down and i was like wow praise the lord <laughs> praise the lord amen God is doing away with false motives of why we should go to heaven. He wants us to have the right motives for going to heaven. Amen? Amen. Heaven itself is the motive for going to heaven. Amen? But a lot of people, when they begin to actually deal with this concept of hell, they come across very interesting verses that would seem, if you just read them with superficial, just a superficial look at face value, when you read them, they would seem to imply that right now that God is burning people for all of eternity, that people are being tortured here's a few verses taken out of context that could be used to construe that thought matthew chapter 8 verse 12 the bible says this but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer what darkness there will be weeping and what gnashing of teeth. You know what's very interesting? This is when Jesus was speaking to the centurion and the centurion believed. The centurion walked away. Jesus turned to his own disciples and said, look, the sons of the kingdom are actually going to be outside the kingdom, but people will come from the east and the west and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who were from the east and who were from the west? The magi came in the very beginning of Christ's ministry. They were from the east. At the very end of Christ's ministry, you have Greeks that were coming from the west. And sure enough, Jesus made it very clear that those who were given the gospel abused and neglected their privileges. They will be outside. Now pay attention to this dramatic language. It's very important. Where there will be weeping and what? gnashing of teeth. Take a good look at Matthew chapter 22. Jesus gives a parable, and he brings out the same point, and it has to do with those who were given the truth, but they rejected it. Jesus isn't saying that this is what all the wicked are going to face. He is simply, when he's using that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's always attached to what the Jews had and what they neglected. He says the same thing in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, and cast the unprofitable, what? servant that's again alluding to the jews into the outer darkness there will be weeping and what gnashing of teeth now when you will go to the dentist sometimes you walk away from the dentist and it seems like you're weeping and gnashing with teeth right it's usually this feeling of just being very uncomfortable or perhaps something's wrong with your jaw but there is another form of weeping and gnashing it's when you are regretting something when you are what Regretting something. You know what's very interesting? When you study the scriptures, there's a very interesting hermeneutical principle. It's called the law of first mention. In other words, when you want to interpret something in scripture, you first find out where in scripture this appears. And then this will give you understanding about how to interpret it every other time. Let's use an example. 40. When does the word 40 appear? Yeah, 40 days of what? Rain, right? And what did God do with the rain? He cleansed the earth. Henceforth, when you see the word 40, it's usually connected to the, uh, to the topic of cleansing. The Israelites, how many years were they in the uh, desert? 40. Moses, how many years was he in the desert? 40. And what was taking place during that 40? Cleansing. When you look at the word seven or the number seven, right? When do you first hear about the number seven? Genesis, right? And it usually talks, it's usually talking about completion. Henceforth, when you see the number seven, it's usually referring to completion or creation. Now, when you see that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you're not just to stop and say, well, it sounds like someone's weeping and gnashing with with their teeth. It sounds like people are being tortured. They're being tormented. But what you do is you take what the Bible teaches and you say, okay, where does that phrase, weeping or gnashing, first appear? And that will give us understanding about how to interpret these verses afterwards. It's found in Psalms 112. Psalms 112 talks about the honor the righteous will receive. Look what the Bible says. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with what? Honor. That's very important. This is describing when the righteous are honored, when they are glorified. The wicked will, what's that next word? See it and be, what's that next word? Grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. In other words, the weeping and gnashing does not come as a God's response to the wicked. Rather, it comes from the wicked when they see what the righteous have. So that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is not uh, found as if God is himself punishing the people. It is simply the people's response when they see what they could have had. And folks, when the wicked are outside the gates, you know what they're going to see? They're going to see Jesus. And they're going to see the righteous. And when they see what they could have had, they're going to start weeping and they're going to start gnashing their teeth in regret. This is very important to understand. The torment is not caused by God. The torment that the wicked are facing in that experience of hellfire is rather their response in realizing we can't be in there anymore. And this is very important to understand. This is very important to understand because hell is not a place. It is not a location. Can you say amen to that? It is rather an experience, an experience of regret when the wicked realize what they could have had, what they could have had. Also, that's something that's very interesting is John chapter five, verse 22. Jesus says this, the father judges, what? No one, but has committed all, what? Judgment to the son. That same word, committed, is found in another place. So notice this, the father has committed all judgment to the son, Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, this is the righteous righteous in heaven for a thousand years, and judgment was, what? Committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. But this is very important to understand. Traditional view of hellfire has God simply just wiping out and mindlessly destroying, continually destroying, the, the people who rejected him. But when you take a good look at what the Bible teaches, the father himself doesn't actually judge the wicked. He leaves that in the hands of his son who became a man and knows what pain and sorrow is all about. Can you say amen to that? But then Jesus does something very interesting. He gives over judgment to his people. So in other words, there are three entities that judge the wicked. Number one, God. Number two, the righteous. And you want to know what number three is? Number three is this. The wicked themselves will judge the wicked. It's very interesting. Right before the wicked are destroyed, they see a panoramic screen. And what they see is their own times, the own times in their life where they utterly rejected God. I love what Ellen White said. She says, when all the facts of the great controversy in view, the whole universe, both loyal and rebellious. Is that talking about the wicked? You better believe it. With one accord, declare just and true are thy ways, thou King of Saints. So this is very important to understand. Even before God destroys the wicked, He has to make sure there is a consensus. There's a what? A consensus. It's very interesting the way God runs His government. Although He is a mo- although it is a monarchy, it's also a democracy. So combining those words, you get. Monocracy, although that doesn't work either. But this is very important to understand. Even when God kicked Lucifer out of heaven, did you know God did not kick Lucifer out of heaven? Heaven kicked Lucifer out of heaven. Lucifer still had access to heaven even after the fall. You can read about it in the Old Testament. But it was only when the cross was happening that all the the, uh, unfallen beings said, Lucifer, you're no longer allowed here. And that's why the Bible says, neither was there a place found for him any." longer. In other words, where Satan has an audience, he has property. You hear what I just said? Where Satan has an audience, he has what? Property. One of the reasons why he can go back and forth in heaven is because he had an audience. But when that was all gone, he no longer had property. It's very interesting. This is very important to notice right here. That these three groups of people that will judge the wicked, God, the righteous, and the wicked themselves, they will all declare just and right are God's ways. In other words, this is, don't miss this point. God does not even violate the free choice of the wicked in destroying the wicked. In other words, they themselves will consent to their judgment. And this is so powerful because when you begin to realize this, you begin to realize, wow, this God is so beautiful that even in destroying the wicked, He wants them to first come to the same conclusion. And that is so powerful. By the way, you know I was uh, working on this seminar yesterday, and turned on the TV, and there was this NE station, and they had this station, this program called Beyond Scared Straight. And this is a program where it was basically modeled after another program that took place 30, 40 years ago, where they take these rebellious kids and they place them in this prison. And these like, really tough, like just prisoners who are in there for murder and rape and all sorts of vicious things, they come in there and they start scaring these kids. And they're like, you want to know what it's like to be here? You're going to be my boyfriend and girl. I mean, they say all sorts of things like that. No joke. And some of these kids start crying, Okay. But they started this program called Beyond Scared Straight, where they have the most vicious criminals come into these rebellious kids. And they said, you want to know what's here? I'm going to own you when you come in here. Do you want to know what it's like to have your birthday in prison? No one cares. And they're just threatening and scaring these kids. And they're just like, you should, I'm, oh my goodness. You watching these kids are like shaking and shivering. But let me make my point with this. At the very end of the day, they all wrote, An essay they read to their parents. They all told their parents, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna change. At the very end of the program, what they do is show the kids one month later, half the kids went back to their old ways. Fear doesn't save anybody. Intimidation doesn't save anybody. Love is the strongest motivation. Can you say amen to that? But this is so beautiful. We're almost done with this. When you begin to see the justice system that is found in the scriptures, it will be very appealing. Just like that one atheist says, he says, look, sinners, if uh, people have committed crimes, then their punishment should be proportionate to their crimes. Do you know in the Bible, it teaches that when sinners are burning, some are destroyed quickly and some are destroyed a little bit longer. You know how you see evidence of that? Because even Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the judgment than it will be for this city. That shows you there is moderation even in the judgment. There's moderation. God doesn't just mindlessly destroy people. There's a moderation. And by the way, this is where it gets very interesting. Ellen White says that what we will do in heaven is not only vindicate the character of God, but we ourselves, she says this in Great Controversy, chapter called God's uh, the great controversy ended. last page, last chapter, and she says this, that we ourselves will met out the punishment. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, if you don't know how to judge in the smallest matters, how will you judge angels? In other words, what God is preparing you right now for, he's not just preparing you for all of eternity in heaven, he's preparing you for the first phase of heaven. And what is the first phase of heaven? It is judgment. And Paul makes that case. What you are now being prepared by with all your trials, all the circumstances, and with all the issues that you have with people and how God is trying to teach you mercy out of it. He is teaching you and he is preparing you for the judgment. You are now being prepared for that thousand years. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, what exactly what we'll be doing? How will we actually punish people? How will we have met out the punishment? This is where speculation comes in. But all I know is this. Great controversy shows that when the wicked... When the wicked are before the throne of God, they see pictures in their own lives where they have rejected God. My guess is, purely speculation, is that what we will do is we will choose those scenes or those moments in their lives where they have utterly rejected the grace of God and they, those things will be seen. It's like a little child, when you bring a child up and you show where they have done wrong and it's just this incredible feeling. So what God wants to do, he wants to make sure that the wicked themselves see why they're not in heaven. It's like what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis, the people of God will say to God, thy will be done. But God says to the wicked, your will be done. And in eternity without the life giver is what? Non-existence. This isn't like trying to go to Modesto or, or Hawaii, like I said, it's not about places. It's not even about, you can't even use that. It's not even a correct dichotomy to place heaven and hell together. Like this, it's either heaven or hell. It's not even a correct dichotomy. What a correct dichotomy would be, would be an eternity of joy and bliss, of spending all the ceaseless ages just enjoying God versus non-existence. That's actually the reality of the choices. In eternity with God or nothing. Eternity with God or nothing. And this is so important for us to understand. So here's some questions that were designed that you can ask people, who do believe in this, this concept that God is burning people for all of eternity. Here's the first question. If hell is real, why is it not mentioned in the most leading English Bible translations until now? Actually, the words that were used for hell are not actually accurate. If hell was real, and if Paul was commissioned by God to preach the gospel to the nations, why did Paul not mention hell even once to de- except to declare Victory over it. Can you say amen to that? Because Paul knew the real motivation for heaven. If God recreates the new heavens and new earth, where will hell be? How does God pronounce no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death if there is an eternal dying of lost souls? Can you say amen to that? If immortality is based on the tree of life, how do the righteous burn for all of eternity? Doesn't that make sense? Imagine this: here you are in the Garden of Eden, okay? You're eating the fruit to do what? To live forever. How can the wicked live forever unless there's like a tree, an evil tree of life in there? You know, they're being burned and they're just like, here, let me eat one more fruit so I can live another thousand years to be burned. It doesn't make sense, folks. But praise God, the word of God cannot be broken. Amen? And it's beautiful. If the wicked go straight to hell after death, what is the purpose, and this is actually Ellen White's reasoning, what is the purpose of a second coming and a future judgment? It should be good then for all of God's people just to simply die. They'll all be in heaven, if that was the case. If evil bur- evildoers are burning for all of eternity, then has God actually destroyed evil or simply locked it up? Under what circumstances could ceaseless torture and endless progressive affliction be justified? If we in a sinful world could not tolerate such evil, how in a perfectly loving heaven could it ever be? Folks, by simply asking some questions. One day I was doing an evangelistic series. We came on the topic of hellfire. And this old Baptist guy gets up at the end. And he's like, I don't believe anything you say. I don't believe any of this stuff. Hell is forever. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, if God doesn't destroy hell, if God doesn't destroy sinners right away, and he burns them, that means sin is still in existence. I need you to answer that question. I said, if God is dis- burning sinners for all of eternity, how is it that the righteous could ever be happy? And then I asked him a st- these questions. And you know what he said to me? He's like, he shook his head. And he's like, you know, those are good questions. I need answers to them. And I said to him, I said, you better get answers for them. they are so powerful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's keep going. If hellfire, if hellfire is an eternal fire, why is Sodom not burning today after it was destroyed with eternal fire? Can you say amen to that? How is the concept of an eternal burning hell consistent with God's revealed justice? One atheist actually put it this way. He was challenging these Christians and he was saying, look, you are more moral than the God you present to me. Even the most wicked man probably more moral than the God that you're presenting to me. Folks, you know what Satan has done? Satan has actually placed a false picture of God and he is making God do things that even Satan himself would fear to do. He has made God into the most vicious monster. If hell is forever, why is death in Hades finally thrown into the lake of fire? Can you say amen to that? If God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, how does trillions and trillions of years of torment of the wicked ever satisfy him? Who will it satisfy? What will it satisfy him if God takes no satisfaction in it? How does one rectify an eternal punishing because of simply temporal deeds? What purpose does destroying sinners nonstop for all of eternal existence ever accomplish? Folks, by asking some simple questions, you will find that most people agree with you. By the way, you know what's very interesting? Um, You guys knew Ravi is, right? India, you know, anybody in India? Okay, so here's the thing. You know, I I stay, I correspond with uh, their group a little bit. And I've sent emails back and forth, they send emails back to me. What's very interesting, I posed a thought experiment to them. I said this, and it was to actually his personal secretary, Ravi Zacharias' personal secretary, she answered back. I said this, if you could design a justice system that would deal with wicked people in the afterlife, what would it consist of? And I said, by the way, eternal torment is not an option. I said, this is purely a thought experiment. She wrote back to me two days and she says, you know, She says, we have to follow the scripture, whatever the scripture says. But she said, have you ever read N.T. Wright's material? Now, if you study N.T. Wright's material, what's very interesting, his view of hell is completely different than the traditional view of hell. It's borderline annihilationism, which is what we believe in. Folks, a lot of people are waking up to this truth, and you have this truth right now. You will see what it does to people. People will be so freed and so blown away by what you have. And by the way, this is the last point I'm going to bring up right here. Moses, the first time he came to God, do you remember what he came with? His shepherd. His lamb got lost, went into a cave, and he saw what? A burning bush. He saw the burning bush, right? And it was on fire. Do you remember the first thing God says to him? Take off your shoes, right? In other words, when Moses first approached God Himself, there was an, the Angel of the Lord. The Bible says was there. It was a burning bush, and Moses had to take off his sandals. But do you know at the very end of Moses' life, he was now dwelling in the fire of God? The Bible says he would forty days and forty nights he would be on the mountain, and just in the midst of the fire. But when you take a good look at when Moses first started his relationship with God, and then where he ended up. In fact, he was this time, one day he came off the mountain, the fire of God, and he was on the other side of the veil. The other side of the veil. You know what the Bible says right here? A very interesting question is asked by the sinners in Zion. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Now watch the question they asked. It's a very interesting question. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And the answer is given in the next part of the verse. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. In fact, it will not be sinners that will burn for all of eternity. It will be the righteous. Can you say amen to that? And as we grow in our understanding and knowledge of God, we will step closer and closer and closer to God than even Lucifer himself was. Than even Lucifer himself was. And this is so beautiful because getting to know God begins now. Can you say amen to that? One of the reasons why God does not take the wicked to heaven is because Ellen White says in Steps to Christ that even heaven itself would be hell to them and they would run. God actually saves the wicked from an eternity in hell by blotting them out completely. And Satan has reversed it and making it seem like God is destroying sinners for all of eternity. But in God's mercy, he is actually saving the wicked from an eternity in fire by destroying them completely. Why? Because their minds aren't ready. They have made themselves fit, unfit for heaven. Folks, the God we serve is beautiful. Amen? Amen. The God we serve is so beautiful and he is preparing us for an eternity with him. And as we begin to know our God, as we begin to see the beauty of God and the love of God, our lives will be transformed and one day we will step into the fire of God, his very presence. Amen? Amen? Praise God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for this time. God, that one day we will dwell in the fire of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you choose us. Lead us to someone, God, who we could bless with this understanding. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.